0: All right, we're doing children's message a little different this week. Pastor David's out here. I'm up here. And this is kind of the introduction to my regular message as well. Back when I was about eight years old or so, how many of you are maybe any, have you anywhere near eight? You're nine. All right. So I was about your all's age, actually maybe a year or two older. My parents were having a New Year's Eve party at our house. And there was a football game on TV, and one of my friends said, let's play a game. And the game was that he and I would try to guess whether the next play in football would be a run or a pass. Now, do you think, is there any way when you're watching football to tell um, if it's going to be a run or a pass next? Any ideas? No idea? You all have any ideas about how you could tell if, it's, if it might be a run or pass? end zone they might pass if it's close to the end zone they might yeah I mean that's one of the things the place you are in the field how much time is left how far it is till the first down those are all factors that might uh, influence whether it's going to be a run or a pass Um, there are other factors as well Um, but when I was watching that football game I had no idea if it would be a runner pass. Kind of like you guys kind of were. I don't know. Um, for me, I, it was kind of intimidating. I felt kind of clueless there. But, you know, I had to guess. It was just a blind guess. I had no idea what is going to be. Now, football, you have to, teams plan a lot of what they're going to do. It's called strategy of figuring out, okay, what are we going to do? What plays are we going to run? If you wanted to learn more about football, how would you learn more about what football is all about and how to play? You can practice football like my brother. Yeah, you can practice football. Yep. Watch it. Watch it, yes. Watching it. And then as you watch it, you not only see what they're doing, but then you listen to people talking about football. Any other ideas of how you might learn about football? Play kids football. Yeah, play kids football. Playing it is one of the best ways to learn about football. Um, So there are a lot of ways you can learn about football. And as you learn more about it, then you'll understand it more. And if you were playing that game as you get older about, is it going to be a run or pass, you'd feel more confident, wouldn't you? Now, I think that when we represent Jesus to the world around us, it's kind of like that where many Christians, when they think about talking with others about Jesus, it's very intimidating, very scary. They feel kind of clueless. But we can learn about how to talk with others about Jesus in the same way that we can learn about football. And as you all grow up, there are going to be a lot of things that you're interested in. A lot of things that you're going to spend time doing and trying to learn about and enjoy. But I'm praying for you all that one of the things that you devote your time to is learning more about Jesus and learning more about how to point others to Him as well. So let let me pray for you all. Our Father, we thank you that you are loving God and that you give us the opportunity to know you. And I pray for these children up here right now that as they are growing, that they will grow up to love you and to serve you and also to know how to represent you well to the world around them. Lord, give them confidence in their relationship with you and confidence for how they are representing you. And I pray that same thing for each one of us now as we turn to Scripture, that you will teach us, Lord, how to faithfully represent you and point others around us to Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You all may have a seat. And as they're having a seat, I invite all of us to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. I think this feeling that we have of being kind of intimidated or feeling kind of clueless in terms of representing Christ is a very common feeling for Christians where, you know what, we know that we should point others to Christ. We hear that we're called Christ's ambassadors. But on a practical basis, what does that look like? How do we engage in conversations that would point others to Jesus? And that's what we're talking about this morning. We're in a series right now called Engage. And Engage is all about equipping us to to engage our ever-changing culture with the never-changing gospel. And over the last few weeks we've been talking about the spectrum of engagement with culture and how there are really three primary avenues by which we can engage culture. There are times as Christians that we need to confront culture. There are other times, though, where it's important to be conversing with culture, having that back-and-forth dialogue. And then we also can create culture in a way that points people to Christ. And today we're specifically talking about what it looks like to confront culture and to converse with culture. And the book of Acts is a very intriguing, fast-paced book about the expansion of the early church. It's written about events that took place from about 30 to 60 A.D., And it features largely the Apostle Paul, especially in the second half of the book. And here in our passage today, Paul is in the city of Athens. If you were to read earlier in chapter 17, you would see that Paul and some of his missionary companions were on a missionary journey through Greece, from the northern part of Greece to the southern part of Greece. And just before our passage, he was in a city called Berea, And there was a riot that was breaking out in Berea because people didn't like Paul and didn't like what he was saying about Jesus there. And so the Christians in Berea wanted to protect Paul, so they sent him away from Berea. And so Paul ended up over in the city of Athens, and he was waiting there for his missionary partners to join him. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Now I'd like to set for us the context of what is taking place here. Paul's in Athens. Athens was and really still is quite the amazing city. One of the arresting features of Athens is... The exquisite architecture, most prominently, the Acropolis, uh, which is world-famous there. I and mean, you see a picture of it, probably recognize the Acropolis, but there are many other exquisite buildings as well. There was the marketplace there in Athens, which was very near to the Acropolis marketplace. not only sold goods from around the world, but it was really the hub of social life in that city. Athens was home to many theaters. It was home to many world-famous artists who displayed their their paintings and their sculptures throughout the city. For those who like philosophy, Athens was was a dream city. Because Athens had the heritage of, of philosophers like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. And so Paul was here in Athens, and looking at it from a typical perspective, you think, wow, it must have been really cool to be there to see the sights, to take in everything, maybe go to a play, look at all the paintings, stuff like that. But Paul was not really focused on those things. Instead, he was focused on the fact that the city was full of idols. It says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens was was full of idols. One ancient author jokingly said, you know what? In Athens, it it is easier to find a god, meaning an idol, than it is to find a man. Because they are everywhere. I mean, there are countless shrines and temples and and statues and, and fountains dedicated to certain gods. I mean, even the Acropolis was a place of worship of these pagan deities. I mean, even the Parthenon was a temple for the goddess Athena. And so this idolatry was present throughout Athens. And Paul here, because of the idolatry that he saw there, it says Paul, he, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. We see that he was engaging people with the gospel. He was engaging people with the gospel here. It says that he was reasoning with them, which is a word that just talks about this back-and-forth dialogue that's taking place where, where he is trying to convince them of the truthfulness of the gospel. Now, last week I made the comment, uh, you've probably heard it other places as well, that you can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God. And I think there's some truth in that, but we have to clarify what's this talking about because it's very clear it's not talking about we should not have a back-and-forth dialogue. We shouldn't field objections and questions and stuff like that, because Paul's reasoning with them. Earlier in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, it says, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So he reasoned with him. It's this back-and-forth dialogue. He was explaining from the scriptures, building a case for Jesus being the Messiah, and he was trying to prove that case. But when we think about this idea of arguing people in the kingdom of God, we have to recognize, you know what, it's really God's work that changes people's hearts, but we have a responsibility to engage in this constructive dialogue that can lead them to Christ, even, even the back-and-forth nature of it. But we do have to watch our tone, and I think that's what this quote is really getting to. We have to make sure that the tone does not become argumentative and angry. Because if people dig in their heels, if they close off their ears, if, if it becomes personal in the back-and-forth dialogue in terms of putting each other down, well, then the conversation is headed in a really bad direction. Last week we talked about the analogy of a submarine and a destroyer, the destroyer rec- uh, representing a Christian sharing the gospel, and the submarine representing a non-Christian. If, this, if the destroyer comes in with guns blazing, well, the submarine's going to dive down. They're either going to hide or start shooting back. And our goal in evangelistic conversations is to do our best to keep people up on the surface, keep them emotionally and ment- mentally and physically engaged. But if we become angry, or if they become angry, um, uh, they're going under. And, and we lose the ability to communicate with them in a productive way until we're able to settle the thing down. Now, we do have to recognize there are times when emotions do enter into things. I mean, look at Paul. It says that when he saw the city was full of idols, it says he was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed. Another translation says that his spirit was provoked within him. It's talking about this, even these strong emotions, maybe even the anger that's welling up inside of him as he looks at these idols he's able to, te- to keep those strong emotions under control. Because he knew, you know what, if he loses control of his emotions, it's going to make him look bad, going to make, make Christ look bad. He's going to lose the ability to persuasively point people to Christ. And so we see here that Paul, he's reasoning in the synagogues uh, with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. He's reasoning in the marketplace day by day with really anyone who's there, who, who's willing to talk with him. But then along the way, it says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate debate with him. And you may wonder, okay, who are these people? Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? Well, they were the two main schools of philosophy there in Athens at that point. And they come up to him, and they're curious. Uh, I mean, they enjoy talking about new ideas. One of them just just has a blatant put-down of Paul, saying, um, saying, what is this babbler trying to say? I mean, this idea of a babbler is someone who just doesn't really know what they're talking about. They're just kind of picking up little ideas from here and there. And they're just presenting them, but they really don't know what they're saying. So it's, it's a real put-down. Others of them are saying he seems to be advocating a foreign god. And the reason is because he was talking about the resurrection. In that Greco-Roman culture, they didn't have a category for understanding or appreciating a physical bodily resurrection. See, their view of life and of the afterlife was one where their body was evil. And it was kind of entrapping their soul, which was good. Their their true self was their soul. But their body was evil, so death, in their view, could actually be a good thing. To shed the body, so that way their soul would be free. But then when Paul starts coming here talking about this Jesus who was bodily resurrected and how Christians can experience the same thing, they thought, that doesn't sound right at all. They they didn't like that idea at all. They said sounds like he's advocating for foreign gods. And so they were interested though in learning more because you know they like learning new ideas. And so it says that they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So he's invited to present the gospel to the Areopagus. Now you may be wondering what in the world is the Areopagus. Well, the Areopagus was, uh, was a group of people, the highest court in the land. They judged criminal cases. They judged civil cases. They debated all the time about law and politics and, and religion and just morality and things like that. It was a place where a lot of ideas were constantly being passed back and forth. And they met at this place that we know today as Mars Hill. Now, Mars Hill, all it is, is this big hill of rock that is actually right next to the Acropolis. The picture on the right there um, is taken from the Acropolis looking down. And if you were to go there today, you would see that there's actually a plaque there on the side of the hill that contains Paul's sermon here in Acts 17 out of recognition of of the biblical significance and the historical significance of this place. And and if you're wondering, Mars Hill and Areopagus, they actually mean the same thing, just in two different languages. But even this was a place of, of, of pagan worship. Mars was a Greek god. Ares for Areopagus, Greek god. Um, it's a place of worship. But I mean, you see, Shelley and I had the opportunity to go there a number of years ago. You see, we're standing there, we're symbolically reading Acts 17 right there on Mars Hill where Paul delivered this speech. But you can see up behind us is the Acropolis, so it's right there. Um, so, so Paul goes here, and he has the opportunity to present the gospel to them. And I think this is a great picture of how when we are engaged with the culture and we are open to God working through us, He will open doors that will be simply amazing if we are open to His work through us. Many times that will just be in individual conversations where, you know, someone at work brings something up or asks a question and we're like, wow, what a cool open door here to point them to Christ. Maybe it's a family member, neighbor, coworker, whatever. All kinds of open doors. And sometimes the door gets opened that we never even imagined. I and mean, that's kind of what Paul experienced here where he's just out there talking, and all of a sudden he gets to talk to the highest court in the land. I mean, this type of stuff still happens today if we are open to it. I think of how um, back just after I graduated from college, some friends and I were involved in doing an outreach at a hard rock music festival called X-Fest. It was up in Somerset here in Wisconsin. And we were there for the weekend, and just a lot of really cool opportunities and neat conversations about Christ But there's this one guy, Jake. He's he's pictured up there with me. I got to know him very early on on our first day there. He wasn't a Christian, but, you know, he was very interested using the terminology of Acts 17. I was reasoning with him through multiple conversations seeking to point him to faith in Christ. And at one point early on, he said, you know, we're here over a week, and I think we should have a church service on Sunday morning. And I asked, are you sure? You really want to have a church service here? Because I'm thinking, okay, 10,000 drunk college students. They want a church service. So, so I asked, him, yeah, yeah, I want a church service here. So so I was preparing. I had prepared a little devotional on the gospel and stuff like that. So Sunday morning came, and I went to look for Jake's campsite, which was just about 20 yards from ours. And, and we couldn't find Jake anywhere. Eventually, I found him um, just basically wasted in a van. And then I said, Jake, we were talking about this church service. Do you still want to do that? He said, I can't get up, but why don't you do it anyway? And so I went down to the campfire where there were probably a dozen or so of his friends around there. We got to know some of them through the weekend. And so I went down there and said, hey, Jake, he and I were talking and he just wanted to do a church service. He's obviously not in the greatest condition right now, but what do you guys think? You want to do a church service here? And they said, yeah, go for it. And so here I am, middle of this campground. Um, I mean, a lot of Great, wild and crazy stuff was going on there through the weekend. But it's an open door to share the gospel with a dozen and ten of people around the campfire there. So I, I shared the gospel with him and, and attempted to be in a relevant way. One of my friends uh, shared his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ. He had a similar background to many of the people there. A lot of rough things had gone on in his life. And then we fielded questions about Christianity for the next 10 or 15 minutes. It is a really, really neat opportunity. It's a picture of if we are open to God working through us, if we are engaged with the people around us, He will open doors that will surprise us. We talked last week about 1 Peter 3:15 about always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. If we are engaging with culture, we will have opportunities. The question is, will we be ready? Will we be ready? Paul here in Acts 17 was certainly ready for this opportunity at the Areopagus. And I'm going to read now his speech, beginning in verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, You are an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. and And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now there's a lot here. We're actually going to be focusing on this passage a couple different times in this series. We'll come back to it in a couple weeks, looking at it from a different angle. But but right now I want to look at Paul's communication strategy as he's interacting with this pagan audience here. And it's important to recognize that, that he is starting at a place that they understand. Part of his communication strategy is starting at a place that they understand. He says, people of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. All he's doing is just observing a characteristic of their lives. They are very religious, and this religiosity is a badge of, courage, or a badge of honor and pride for them. So he says, I see you're very religious. And then he points out one of the altars he saw there in Athens. The altar said, to an unknown God. That was the inscription on it. And you can imagine, the people gathered there in the Areopagus, they would have immediately pictured in their minds where that altar was. So he's starting at a place that they understand. It's so important when we're talking with people about the gospel that we start where they are rather than starting just wherever we would like to. I mean, think about when you're visiting a mall, a mall that you don't know. If you're like me, you may not really like going to a mall very much. Many of you aren't like me in that respect. You like malls. You like going in malls and just kind of wandering around, seeing what there is to see. I don't care for malls very much. When I go into a mall, I'm there for a specific purpose, usually looking in a specific store. But if it's an unfamiliar mall, I don't know where things are. So what do I do? I look for a map. Now on a map in a mall, there is pretty much always something that marks where you are. It's a star, it's an arrow, and it says you are here. And that is a key aspect of that map. When you really think about it, a map is, is quite worthless if you don't know where you are on that map. But once you're able to place where you are, then you're able to see what the route is to go where you need to go. Now it's the same when we are engaged in conversations with people about Christ, that we have to meet them on their turf and the starting points that they understand rather than jumping way over here in the left field, something that may make complete sense to us, but to them just seems like complete gibberish. So we need to start right where they are rather than asking them to come over here to where we are in terms of of a mental starting point. And notice here where Paul didn't start. He didn't start by quoting Bible verses. Many times in evangelism, we think, okay, we need to do evangelism by, by just sharing a bunch of Bible verses. And you know what? There are certainly times where sharing Bible verses is very, very relevant and important in evangelism. And I find that when I'm talking with someone who has a significant church background, who has a, a significant respect for Christianity, then by all means, I want to be pointing them to biblical truths. It, you, even using... The Bible or quoting from the Bible. It's very effective then. But what if the people I'm talking with don't even believe in God? What if they completely discredit the Bible? What if they're antagonistic against Christianity? What if they come from another religious background? What if they have no church background? They don't know a thing about the Bible. You know what then? The Bible may very well not be the best starting point. I have found times when I quote a Bible verse or refer to the Bible in a conversation with a non-Christian that they actually get upset. I've had a couple people get angry with me, telling me, don't quote that Bible to me. Or or one person once said, you know, tell me this stuff, but I don't want to hear it um, using Scripture, using the Bible verses. Just tell me what you're thinking here. Because what can end up happening if we don't start where they are, is that it's kind of like that submarine it ends up going under. They disengage. So we want to keep them up on the surface, keep them engaged. So we need to start where they are. And this is the practice of Paul. And throughout the book of Acts, we see that when he goes into a Jewish synagogue, uh, meeting with people who have a reverence for Jewish scriptures, he's using the scriptures to reason with them about Jesus the Messiah. But then when he goes into another place like, At- or like Athens— a place of pagans where they are not worshiping God. They don't really value God. They don't really revere Scripture at all. Then he starts at a different point. But he's still pulling in biblical principles. He's just not quoting directly from the Bible. He's not saying the Bible says this and the Bible says that. So, So we have to start at a place that they understand. And along the way, it's important that we are affirming any agreements that we have with them. Because there will be a lot of things that we may disagree with, especially some of the core spiritual, theological beliefs. But we need to find things to agree with them on. I mean, we all have the experience of, of finding common ground with someone, even who we just met. I mean, how many of you have been to a sporting event and given high fives to people you've never met before? Anyone done that? Does it feel strange? No. No. Because you have a common bond with them in cheering for that sports team. I remember when I was a teenager, I went to a St. Louis Blues hockey game because I'm from Missouri, and it was playoffs. They had just swept the Chicago Blackhawks four games. I was at the game, got to wear—I was wearing this Blues hat and Blues coat, uh, stopped at at a gas station or Hardee's or something in a bathroom on the way home, and um, there was a guy in there, he's like, Hey, did you see the Blues game? Yeah, I was there. And I mean, he gave me a high five right there in the bathroom. I never met him before, never saw him again. That's what happens. You suddenly have this instant common ground when you find something in common with them. It's the same thing if you meet someone who has the same vocation that you have, drives the same type of car that you have, grew up in the same place you grew up. A couple months ago, I was at the Kiwanis meeting here in Port Washington, and I met a woman, never met her before, but we were just talking, and came to find out we, we grew up 15 minutes from each other in Missouri. I mean, I'm from Missouri. She's 15 minutes away. I used to drink milk that came from, from her family's farm. small world. But it's amazing how there is a connection there because we shared commonalities. That's what happens in evangelistic conversations as well, that when you find things to agree on in commonalities, then the level of trust builds. And the more trust there is more likely it is to keep that submarine, metaphorically speaking, up on the surface and engaged. And it's great if we can uh, build common ground and affirm agreements about things like sports teams and work and, and things like that. You know what? That's really good. It builds credibility. But it's even better when we're able to find common ground on deeper values. And I'm quite convinced that even if you find someone you completely disagree with on deep biblical or theological issues, they still have values in their life that you can agree with. And so the challenge for us is to identify what are those values and how can we affirm them and then use those values as a launching point to get further down the road towards Christ. I mean, the value might be something like, no... it might be a lament about how our culture, just people don't know how to commit anymore. They, they make a commitment, but they just break it right away. And someone might be lamenting about that, and you, you could be like, yeah, I, you know, I completely agree with that. Or maybe it's someone talking about just their desire for true love, how true love is hard to find, but they, they yearn for that. An agreement on the value of love for other people, or even romantic love, can be a launching point to the gospel. Or maybe you find someone who says, you know, I'm just sick of Christians. You may, may not agree with that, but they may along the way say, you know, there has been so many wrong things, so many atrocities committed in the name of Christ down through the years. They quote the Inquisitions and, and the Crusades and stuff like that. And you can say, you know what? I agree. There has been a lot of bad stuff done in the name of Christ. And then you, could, you get that agreement. I mean, it's kind of shocking for people sometimes when you do agree about those things. But you use that to build credibility and agreement, and then you can use those things to launch deeper into conversations about Christ. And you look here, verse 28 shows a remarkable agreement. I mean, Paul's already said, you know, you guys are religious, I'm religious. You know what, here's this altar that— I mean, he could have pointed out all these other altars to false gods and criticized them, but instead he finds an altar that he's not criticizing it so much— as he's just pointing it out and then using it as a launching point further into the gospel. But verse 28 is very remarkable. He quotes here from two pagan poets. First of all, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's a verse that a lot of people know, even if they don't know where it comes from. The origin is a pagan poet. And Paul used it in this conversation to point to Christ. Another one, he says, as one of your own poets have said, we are his offspring so Paul here is referencing the, these, these poets' well-known phrases that the people there would have agreed with. Now, it doesn't mean that he's agreeing with everything these poets ever said. Certainly not. But he found these quotes to be very helpful uh, for building a launching point deeper into the gospel. And I think this shows the importance— of as we engage culture to not cocoon. Remember, that's one of the dishes you can fall into if you're trying to engage culture, is cocooning, isolating yourself from culture. We need to be critically engaged with culture. This is one of the reasons why I think there is value in reading biographies, reading other popular books. Um, that's one of the reasons I enjoy reading Car and Driver and Sports Illustrated, not just for recreational sake, but it gives, gives insights for ministry. I mean, for instance, just a couple of days ago, I was reading a Sports Illustrated article about the basketball player Chris Bosh. He's a superstar in Miami Heat. Last season, he had some blood clots that went into his lungs. He was fighting for life and death in the hospital. Not just—it um, just, wasn't just a question of, is my basketball career in jeopardy? It was a question of, my life is in jeopardy. And the interviewer for this article was interviewing him in his home and said, Chris, what did you learn from this? I mean— that's a time where you really process through life's big questions. What's your purpose in life? Stuff like that. And Chris Bosh, when asked that question, it says that he was sitting there on his dining room table in this interview. He slammed his fist onto the table and said, I am a ball player. And then he had an expletive right after that. I am a ball player. He said, you know what? As I thought about it, I mean, he has a family. He has other things going on in life, a lot of hobbies. But he said, that is the core of who I am. And to me, that provides a lot of rich ministry potential. Because if that is the core of your identity, and many people in our society do um, get the core of their identity and purpose out of something they do that is very transient, if that is the core of his identity, what's going to happen when he retires? That time comes for all professional athletes. What's going to happen then? Is there something bigger that you can identi- put your identity and purpose in? To me, that type of statement coming from Sports Illustrated is ripe with ministry potential. If only we have eyes to see it and to apply it in our conversations. That's why I read Fast Company Magazine. Um, Technology, business, helps me know what's going on. It's interesting, but it's also relevant for ministry. That's why I find it helpful at times to quote from Tom Brady, LeBron James, uh, Richard Dawkins, um, Madonna. I mean, all kinds of people in conversations because it not only builds credibility— but it also helps illustrate the very points, the biblical points I want to make, but in a way that that people understand. We want to affirm agreements and then use those agreements to help us to replace important errors with Christ-centered truth. We we use these agreements, these shared values and such, as a launching point to replace important errors with Christ-centered truth. I'm just going to read a quote to you from Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City who has been very helpful for me. I think this quote is more helpful than just trying to explain it in my own words. He said that our criticism of the culture will have no power to persuade unless it is based on something that we can affirm in the beliefs and values of that culture. He's saying if we really want to persuade people in our culture or the culture in general about the truthfulness of the gospel or we're we're critiquing or confronting some aspect of our culture— the greatest power to persuade comes when we launch from an affirmation of something in that culture's beliefs and values. I think, you're just using another analogy here, I think of my daughter. She loves to jump. You know her. You know she jumps, she jumps, she jumps. She jumps off anything. We had to take the side off her crib a couple months ago because she not only learned how to crawl out of the crib, she would get up on the side of the crib, perch on top of it, and take a flying leap right off of it. We thought, that's kind of dangerous. She loves to jump, though. And a couple weeks ago, I was, I was out there playing the yard with the kids. Tehilo, our daughter, was three and a half years old, was swinging. She got the idea to jump off the swing. But not from a seating position. From a standing position on the, on the seat of the swing, she's standing there holding on to it. And I try to tell her, Teila, that's not really a very good idea. Now, what happens if you try to jump that way off the swing? You land on your face. You do a face plant. I tried to warn her. She said, no, I can do it. I can do it. So I decided, okay, we have a teachable moment in progress right here. Sure enough, she tried to launch. She pushed with her feet. The swing went back, and she did a face plant right in the ground. She wasn't hurt. I mean, she was a little shaken up, but— that's a picture of what happens. If we wanna, If we try to confront culture, uh, whether it's culture broadly or just in an individual conversation, if we try to confront something or are, are making a, a semi-controversial statement about Christ or, or biblical morality or something, if we try to launch into that without solid grounding of, of a common ground, commonality, and, and some value that we've based that on, odds are good we're going to fall flat on our face. We're not going to be persuasive. If anything, then we're just going to make people upset. But look what Paul's doing here in this passage. He quotes these two pagan poets talking about the personal nature of God, how we are his offspring. And then he uses that as a launching point to critique their theological views. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He's saying, you know what? Look at us people. We are flesh and blood. We, we are active. We have a conscience. We, we can think. Why do you think that these idols made of, of uh, wood or stone or metal, why do you think those are gods? God is so much bigger than that. He's like us being a personal being. He's active. He's conscious. But so much more. And so Paul is building off the basis of a shared value in culture to then critique that culture and then point to Christ. So, so as we're going along in our conversations, as we start where they are, affirm agreements along the way, use those agreements then to launch further into the gospel and critique the important errors. Don't run down every single rabbit trail of disagreement, but, but focus on the main thing there. Then, then we're able to point them... More to Christ. And here we see that he then calls them to repentance. He says, You know what? God calls all people everywhere to repent. But notice where in this presentation of the gospel repentance comes. It doesn't come at the very beginning. Some Christians think that in evangelism we need to call people to repentance at the very, very beginning. He doesn't do that. It comes later after he's already built that common ground and built the case. That's when he's calling for repentance. And this shows the importance of walking with people from where they are to Christ. I mean, you think about if you ask someone for directions. I mean, they could give you directions, say, okay, go up here at this street, turn left, and then you see this landmark, go over here. Those can be helpful. But what this is talking about here in this example of Paul is more like someone who says, okay, you need to get over there. I'm going over there too. Why don't you come with me? Or why don't you follow me? I'll take you there. That's a picture of the most effective evangelism there is. As you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, walking with them from where they started to where they need to go with Christ. And that's one of the reasons why as a church we, we, we focus on discipleship through relationships. That's one of our core disciple-making values. It's that relational aspect, walking with people. You know what? It might be a long, long journey with many bumps in the road. If someone started out a long way from Christ, We can't expect there to be instant change overnight. Maybe there might might be for some people. For many, it's going to be a longer journey. And we are called to walk that journey with them, pointing them to Christ. Now, Paul here is a great example of the fact that people will have different responses. I want to pick up in verses 32 and 34 as we close. It says, After he gave the speech, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. But we see here that there is a very mixed response to the gospel. And, and that's just what we have to recognize. That's, just, that's the case. Even Jesus, in giving the parable of the sower, or sometimes it's called the parable of the four soils, He's talking about a farmer throwing a seed out there, how some of the seed falls on fertile ground and grows up and is tremendously fruitful. But you have other seed that falls among the thorns. It grows up for a while and then it's choked out. You have other seed that falls on hard ground. It never grows at all. And we aren't responsible for people's responses. Now, I do want to point out the fact that, that when people were upset with Paul here, it was not at Paul himself as the messenger— They were upset at Paul's message. It says when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. It's important, as we talked about last week, that when we are representing Christ, that we are not the stumbling block as messengers, but that we are so faithfully representing the gospel in a a gracious, respectful way, that if they stumble, they stumble over the gospel and not over us as messengers. We have to remember our call is to plant seeds. Into water seeds, and God is the one who will make them grow. Now, as we're talking about this topic of communicating the gospel, I want to point to a resource that can be helpful. It's a book that I actually just came across just relatively recently. Um, It's called Tactics. It's by an author named Gregory uh, Kokel. He he wrote this book, and there it's not one of those books that talks about why we believe what we believe. There are great books out there about that. I, I recommend those frequently. This is a book. About communication strategies in evangelism, we'll be talking more about this, these types of ideas that are in this book next week as well, with asking questions. But this is a book I recommend. It's very readable, but it's also practical. If you want to engage people in your in your life with the gospel, this is a very helpful um, tool for learning how to communicate the gospel effectively. Now, earlier, when I was talking with the children, I talked about how in life we're going to have many different things to which we can devote our interests and our passion and our time and our energy. My prayer for them and our prayer for us as well is that in the midst of all the other business, that we will prioritize learning more about Jesus, growing closer to Him, but also prioritize learning more about how to represent Him faithfully to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus we thank you for the incredible privilege we have of being your ambassadors and I pray that you will work in us and work through us to equip us to be fruitful ambassadors Lord, to be faithful ambassadors that when we are talking with people around us when we're even just in a casual conversation that we will represent you in a way uh, full of grace and truth that that is attractive, that people do want to know what's the reason for that hope that you have and that you will open up doors for ministry and that we will make the most of those opportunities. Please give us wisdom, Lord, to not just shoot off our mouth and not to lose um, lose control of our, our emotions, but to engage people in a redemptive manner and that we will experience tremendous joy and you will receive great glory as you work through us in the spread of your gospel. We love you and thank you for your love for us and pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.